Welcome back to the Armchair Trader podcast. And today we are back in the realm of cryptocurrencies and digital assets. And on the podcast today, we're privileged to have Manu Chaudhry, who is the CEO of DMA Link and is also the CEO and co-founder of Definity Markets. And uh, we're going to have a discussion about some interesting trends and things for investors and traders in both traditional assets and also crypto assets to think about. So welcome to the podcast, Manu. Thanks for coming on. Hey, sure, no problem at all. Thank you for having me on. To kick off with, uh, we've obviously mentioned DMA Link and Definity Markets, two entities you're involved with. Can you give us a quick rundown on on both those organisations and what they do in the markets? Yeah, of course, of course. So, so they are similar businesses with a focus on on slightly nuanced asset classes. So, essentially, DMA Link is a uh, data centric um, electronic trading venue for banks and funds that focuses principally on fiat effects and gold. Uh, Definity Markets again is a is a data centric electronic trading venue again for for banks and funds uh, that focuses specifically on digital assets. So again, very, very similar architecture in terms of infrastructure, very, very similar client base, slightly new to products set. Gotcha. And presumably there are there are some synergies that exist between the two? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So look, just, just to give a bit better background on me. So I, I spent, well, before I joined the world of fintech in 2019, I spent about 18 years working in uh, TradFi, I believe is what the new kids on the block call, um, what I used to call financial markets, but apparently it's TradFi now. Um, and uh, I spent that uh, mainly doing uh, derivative sales, mainly uh, FX options, uh, and then prior to that, uh, commodity derivatives. And, and in the good old days, prior to CBA, uh, interest rate derivatives and also inflation derivatives. Um, most recently at Lloyd's, uh, and then prior to that, Barclays Investment Bank. And um, my client coverage was mainly large corporates and uh, institutions as well. So my, my background, I've got quite a lot of asset classes, but I have a, a very significant passion for borrowed exchange and uh, and that's the one I, I kind of stuck to and then essentially in 2019 I, I left uh, and joined uh, DMA as their CEO and as it happened in 2017 I became a huge fan of crypto and I was uh, looking to add digital assets functionality to the business and obviously in, in 20, 2019 the market wasn't quite as open as it is shall we say now so in in the interest of, uh, of, uh, of not getting myself to too much uh, reputational risk, uh, we, we set up another entity, which was Definity Markets, uh, a year later. And um, yes, there's been incredible interest. Um, interestingly, quite a few of our existing clients uh, on the FX and pressure metal side have been strong advocates and strong proponents of uh, digital asset trading. And that was one of the, the main reasons, other than my own passion, of course, that we pushed forward into that uh, that particular venture. In a way, you were a little bit of an early adopter, but you were also able to sort of ride that wave of increasing institutional interest in crypto assets. Look, yes, yes and no. So I, I actually was introduced to Bitcoin in 2012 and I read the white paper and I stupidly thought that this was just some kind of state surveillance tool and I decided not to buy any. And um, And effectively, it took me... Maybe, maybe I wasn't as smart as I thought initially, but it took me five years to work out what the whole purpose of this was. You know, what was what was the USP? What was so unique about Bitcoin? And unfortunately, I didn't work this out until December 2017. And my first Bitcoin trade was two days before the CME launched Bitcoin Futures. And if, for those of you that don't recall what happened thereafter, uh, the price pretty much collapsed and continued falling for the next couple of years. So not the smartest point to enter a trade, but unfortunately... I wasn't smart enough to work it out any earlier. So, but, but, but the point that I think is really worth making and 
is the most important aspect that most people gloss over and, and, and don't really, um, I think, explain um, to, to, to the investment community properly, which is, you know, what is the, the uniqueness? What is the beauty of, of, for instance, Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin was the first instance ever where we created digital signatures that couldn't be forged. Now, when I realized that, and again, it took me many years to realize this, the use cases, the applications were so far reaching that I just thought this is, this is absolutely incredible. This is the future. And notwithstanding my poor entry level at Bitcoin, I was proved to be correct eventually. Um, and I still think there is a phenomenal future. But my understanding of, of how this is going to affect the, the TradFi market has also changed um, as a consequence of spending a lot more time dealing with, with banks that are entering this market and dealing with funds that currently trade this market as well. So the entire evolution of this market is something that is probably, it's probably slightly different to, to, to what most people understand it to be. Obviously, the, the cryptocurrency market went through a bit of a steep learning curve at the end of last year with the collapse of FTX. Um, prices dropped dramatically. A lot of retail traders left the market. From where you're sitting, what does the institutional sentiment feel like as, as far as crypto markets are concerned um, in the wake of that collapse? That is that is a, a, a very, very interesting question. So look, there's... It's 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 slightly different depending on which side of the pond you're on. So, I would say most, if not all, U.S. banks, apart from apart from the two allies, clearly, clearly J.P. and Goldman's are at the curve on on this particular front. But but notwithstanding those two, I think everyone's a little bit anxious about the regulatory environment in the U.S. and they are a little bit concerned as to exactly where this is going. Um, I'd say Europe is is actually moving full steam ahead, and I don't know whether there's maybe a slight difference in understanding of what the ultimate objective is for this or not. And maybe it's worthwhile me just taking a step back and explaining this for, for your listeners. But but essentially, when I talk about digital assets, I'm not just talking about crypto. Crypto is, I think, um, again, I'm a, I'm a big fan uh, of crypto. I have crypto in my portfolio. Um, I've been an active investor since 2017. And I, I believe it has you know, a small portion of crypto is, is, is definitely worthwhile having uh, in any diversified portfolio. But Crypto isn't really where the digital asset market is actually going. And, and if you look at the, uh, the behaviors that we've been seeing across principally Europe, we've seen quite a few European uh, banks issue essentially digital commercial paper. And we've seen one or two um, institutions in Europe, one bank, one corporate issue a digital bond. So when you see a lot of these, these talking heads, uh, for instance, Raul Powell at Real Vision is, 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 is quite popular for doing this. You know, he talks about the digital asset market being worth 150 to 200 trillion. I and mean, he's 100% correct. But I think sometimes he misrepresents the numbers a little bit. So if you look at the market cap of, of crypto today, it's about 1.1, 1.2 trillion. Um, if you look at the the, uh, the, 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 the market cap of, of, of the global bond market, I would say it's probably something around 115 to 120 trillion. If you look at the value of, uh, of the global loan market, I'd say it's probably around about 226 trillion. So in terms of what he's saying, it's correct, but it's correct for slightly different reasons. So the future of digital assets isn't necessarily crypto. It's an active participant. It's going to be part of it. But the real opportunity is the digitization of the bond market and the digitization of the loan market. And that's why you're seeing so much activity from European banks that are very keen to try and get this market uh, to a position where they can really start doing issuances. And I think we're going to see a point, you know, not necessarily now, but... I'd say in the next 18 months where 
almost all new issuances will be essentially a tokenized version, uh, essentially a digital version of the existing one. So I don't think what we're going to see is uh, people go back and then digitize existing bonds. That makes no sense. It's going to be new issuances going forward. From your perspective, you're sitting there with these two businesses. One one um, was founded in the digital asset space and one of the more traditional FX commodities, TradFi. Do you think that there's scope then for for a venue that has a, an interface between those for those kind of market participants who want to come in and out of those markets and and effectively approach digital assets as as just another as another asset class basically well absolutely yes there is and and, and look don't get me wrong I, I think sometimes you can get a little bit too excited with the technology and, and i know i did and we embraced blockchain and we embraced putting everything on chain and we actually even built a uh, an on-chain decentralized exchange essentially because we were keen to see how how the the, the, the guts of that kind of system worked and what we found was as much as I'm a huge proponent and a huge fan, um, the problem is, even though we're using one of the fastest blockchains in the world, it took about a thousand times more time to actually match a trade than it did on our, in inverted commas, legacy tech stack. So I looked at that and thought, okay, there's elements of the digital world that I like. There's elements of the traditional world that I like. What we really need is a bridge. And I'll give you, for instance, so, so for foreign exchange, you know, we, we execute trades in, in microseconds, but they then take two days to settle through multiple layers of intermediation. On the other hand, digital asset trades will settle in minutes, but you are taking huge amounts of risk because there is at the moment a concentration of execution and custody within the same venue, i.e. you've got concentration risk. And essentially what we've done is we've, we've separated the two out. So we've separated entirely trade execution from custody. And, and I think that's why we have such a, a unique proposition. So we have an existing client base that trades uh, FX and, and gold with us. That same demographic is very interested in trading digital assets using the same TradFi architecture to access that space. We've actually made it possible for that to actually happen. I, I believe, as far as I'm aware, we're the only people and the first people in the world to actually do this. So if you, and apologies, I don't think I answered your question about FTX, sorry, but, but if you look at the, the issues we had around FTX, um, I mean, first and foremost, look, unfortunately, this is just good old fashioned fraud. There's, there's not a lot you can do, um, about that. You, you have a, a team of very young, very inexperienced people running a business that, that quite frankly should have had more oversight, but, but that's, that's maybe another discussion. In terms of the failure of the architecture of the business, the issue you had is the custody of fiat assets, the custody of digital assets and execution were all centralized. And you had failures across all three. With the model that we've created, that is that is basically removed. So you custody your digital assets with whoever you want to, whichever custodian you wish to use. You will uh, custody your fiat, uh, essentially with a, uh, a European investment bank. Um, and effectively, we are nothing more than a trading venue. So a bit like, I guess, Amazon marketplace, where people will, will buy and sell and we as the marketplace will be given a, a very small slice of, uh, of every transaction that's done. I've been on a couple of calls with uh, crypto hedge funds and, and um, multi-strategy hedge funds since FTX blew up. And one of the astonishing things um, has been the discussion about um, how much exposure they had to FTX in, in, in terms of like what percentage of their overall portfolio was sitting on um FTX when it went down and, and, and how much of a hit they took. Um, most of them seem to have been relatively diversified across more than one platform. 
but what staggers me is the the number of them that have not cut haven't been custodying their digital assets off exchange what's what's your view on that now going forwards uh, what should fund managers and, and investors be doing in terms of policy to keep their assets safe in that respect two years ago when we came up with the with, with the overview of the business model you know i i, I remember speaking to quite a, a few crypto natives who, who essentially told me that that um the the legacy model was no longer needed and i said well look call it legacy call it what you want but the reality is that we understand risk in a in a, in a far greater uh, way than, than than i think the uh, the, the newer generation uh, of traders do i mean maybe maybe i'm giving away my age a little bit here but you know we've been doing this for a long time and unfortunately sadly everything is cyclical um, and um, and you know the, the reason that we built the architecture the way we did was to protect uh, investors and to ensure that um, that there was no risk of, uh, of of people disappearing into the ether um, with your assets. That was the whole purpose behind it. So at the time, it, it was I think well received by the traditional community, not so much by the by the crypto natives. Um, I think since FTX has disappeared and gone by the wayside, I think everyone's appreciated that actually it probably makes more sense to have a structure like this where you are not having concentration risk. And even, you know, even if you're diversified across, let's say, 10 different exchanges, you're still almost guaranteeing that you're going to lose 10% in a scenario where one of them goes bust, which, you know, if, I'm, if I put my hat on as an asset allocator, that doesn't sound like a very appealing strategy. So I, I would say that, that look, there's been, a, there's been a, a, a big move. So interestingly, I would say in terms of institutional demand, the demand is is probably as, as large as it was previously, if not larger. Um, so there is a, a desire to, to have exposure to this asset class. But, but the problem is, and the reason that some of these funds, I guess, would have gone to the likes of FTX and other exchanges is essentially what we had was paralysis via lack of, lack of uh, guidance and, and regulation. And this is the issue. You know, if you're a large financial institution, it's very difficult to, to be the first mover in an asset like this. There's all sorts of regulatory issues. There's all sorts of reputational issues. And I think, unfortunately, what we had was a situation where we had a bit of a Mexican standoff. No one was really willing to enter this market. And so people said, well, there is demand. I'm being beaten over the head by my asset allocators to do something. What choice do I have? And I think in that situation where you have no choice but to try and spread your risk, I mean, yes, you're creating a portfolio. Yes, you're diversifying your risk, but you are still massively exposed. Um, and I think, I think now, there is a, a growing cohort of people that are looking at this saying, actually, we need we need another solution. And, and uh, we've been very fortunate to be along at the same time and, and have a, a solution that is that is ready to go and, uh, and ticks all their boxes. And speaking of, of risk, last time we met, you were talking about a crypto anomaly detector that you've been working on as well, which is, is proprietary technology. Um, can you can you say a little bit about how that works and how far along you are with it? Yeah, absolutely. So it's uh, yeah. So it's, give you a bit of background. So one of the one of the biggest challenges we had when we were speaking to banks about digital assets was feedback from the the, the risk desk. And it's again valid comments, which is look, we can't use our our bog standard uh, VAR model because it just doesn't work. You know, this is a seventy vol asset. How on earth are we supposed to manage risk with something like this? Uh, which we kind of took away and thought, yeah, that's a very very good point. And essentially what we did was we, we partnered with a, um, an Italian AI firm called Axion, uh, who are absolute world leaders when it comes to deep learning AI. And uh, essentially we designed it and, um, and, and they helped us actually build the, uh, the, the technology that runs there. But I, I guess without, without boring too much of your audience on this, but essentially what it uses is a, um, a technology called deep learning. And deep learning is essentially the, the next uh, iteration 
of uh, of machine learning. And uh, again, look, I'm, I'm sure as as most of your listeners have probably thought, uh, like I did for many many years. Look, I've been hearing about AI taking over the world forever, and quite frankly, until ChatGPT, nothing ever happened, which is true. But the reason for that was essentially it was only 2018 when we had the processing power to really uh, accelerate deep learning AI. And it was probably only about 2017 when we had enough data to actually have uh, enough inputs to feed the AI. And essentially, if you, if you, if you think, um, think back to, to Moore's law, unfortunately, that stopped in 2012. And the reason that you weren't able to reduce the price of transistors by 50% um, and have a doubling of processing power over the course of 18 months was because, unfortunately, you need to have more than one or two atoms between each transistor for the microchip to work. And we got to a point where we didn't. So the very bright chaps at NVIDIA repurposed the graphics processor for parallel processing. So if you think about, if you think about a string of instructions that go through sequentially a central processing unit, if you were to slice it up, let's say you use a, a thousand GPUs, you could essentially process that information a thousand times faster. And that's why AI has, has come on so, so aggressively. It's grown exponentially in terms of processing power since then. It's those two issues that, are, that have been remedied. Um, so, so we used an algorithm called Isolation Forest, which is a derivative of Random Forest, which is used by, by Google for their, for their artificial intelligence. And effectively, what we did was we, we have a slightly different approach when it comes to um, designing the, the, the AI agent. So typically, what most people do is they use Darwinian evolution. We didn't. We used uh, something slightly different called uh, Lamarckian evolution. And the difference between those is that effectively, in Darwinian evolution, it's survival of the fittest. I, you have one AI agent out of a cohort, maybe several dozen. Um, in the, the methodology we used is, is, is slightly different. Um, the marketing revolution is about uh, survival of those that work most collaboratively, i.e. those AI agents that work best together to make the, uh, the best forecast or predictions. And the, the reason that we actually used um, isolation forest was because technically, in inverted commas, this is a non-predictive model. It doesn't really make predictions, even though it kind of does. And the reason that we did that was because one of the biggest issues you have with any kind of AI system is the, the problem with, with, um, with, with overfit. And this remedied this. So if you think about anomaly detection as being, I guess the best way to explain it is probably, if you imagine if you have a, a data set, irrespective of how large, usually you have some kind of clustering around a mean. Now, what the anomaly detector does is it looks for the outliers and it measures the distance from the mean to the outlier. The greater the distance, the more likely that it was caused by something radically different to the rest of the cohort of data. And effectively, if we if we look at say Bitcoin, so the example, um, what we did was we built Bitcoin as the target vector, and then we selected a whole bunch of context vectors uh, to train the AI uh, agents on. And we we initially started off with about 250, we narrowed it down to 126. And so things like the uh, the 10-year yield, the 210 spread, the dollar index, Nasdaq, Euro stocks, gold, silver. Uh, interestingly, not copper, that for some weird reason makes it not work very well. Um, and then a whole bunch of um, data from the crypto market and perhaps most importantly, on-chain analytics as well. And the combination of these things have created really a, a pretty incredible risk tool. And, and it is a risk tool. What it's essentially able to do is make predictions over a 60-minute window uh, that about 80% of the time are more accurate than the options market. So effectively, what it does is that it will about three or four minutes past every hour, give you a, a percentage. So we'll say in the next uh, 60 minutes, we're going to see there's an 80% chance we're going to see a significant volatility event in, for instance, Bitcoin. Now, it doesn't give you direction because the purpose is not 
necessarily to, to to trade on the back of this. Although if you're an options trader, you could probably trade startups and make money, but that's not the point. It's a risk uh, metric. So it was designed essentially for banks that wanted to ratchet down credit lines before there was an event. Um, and and um, but yes, that's a that's a that's a brief a brief summary of the the technology and how it works. But um, it is uh, very cutting edge, and this is light years ahead of anything else I've seen out there so far. And it was because of technology like this that we actually convinced banks to work with us. All right. So, for example, banks, um, when you're talking about credit lines here, you're obviously talking about something that's very short term, like margin lending or something like that, where it could suddenly, you know, there's, there's, we're talking about here a red dashboard light that will tell a bank it's time to dial down on your exposure. Absolutely. And, and look, I think I think we're still some way away from banks actually entering the market and starting to, to make markets and make prices in these assets. But it's it's only a matter of time before they do. But the first issue they have to overcome is the risk issue. You know, how do we manage the risk? You know, how do we how do we how do we prepare for for events of volatility? You know, what do we do? How do we how do we dial down the um, or throttle the the actual exposure that we have? And, and this is, I think, front and center of that conversation. And I wanted to also ask you about a big story in the news at the moment, which is the fact that Coinbase and Binance are both um, under the microscope with US regulators. Uh, It's obviously a big debate, uh, but I wanted to get your thought on that and whether whether that's going to be good or bad for the industry. And are you are you a fan of, of more regulation? And do you think that that will that will help the digital assets industry in the long run? Look, I think. I think we we need regulators and I think we need regulation, but the libertarian in me, uh, you know, I, I have to say I I think we have to be very careful because every time we have a crisis, every time we have a problem, all I hear from everyone I speak to is, well, you know, we we need more regulation. Now the reality is is we have a lot of regulations in place already. The issue is not more regulation. The issue is defining how those regulations affect a new asset class, which has not been done, by the way. The SEC have been very poor at explaining um, how existing uh, regulations actually uh, apply to the digital asset space. And, and I think that's the biggest issue. So do we need more regulation? Absolutely not. What we need is clarity, and we're just not getting it. And so I, I'm a little bit confused by these attacks on on, on Coinbase and, and on Binance. Um, you know, don't get me wrong, I think, I think some of the issues I've read uh, some of the behaviors I've seen, you know, from or, or the alleged behaviors I've seen from Binance are a little concerning if they are true. I, I think that unfortunately Coinbase has perhaps been caught in the crossfire. You know, again, it's the the only significant exchange that is listed publicly. And obviously with that comes a whole bunch of responsibilities and a duty of care to report uh report uh, balances, uh, you know, report breaches of security and so on and so forth. So I, I would be far more comfortable um facing a counterparty like Coinbase than I would facing a counterparty like uh, like Binance. But nonetheless, uh, I, I think the biggest concern I have is, um, unfortunately, the the regulators seem to be at a point in time where they're, where they're, they're looking to um, to uh, to come after the, the exchanges. And I, I don't know whether it's, I don't know what, what, what it is now. Maybe it's the promotional season, who knows? But it's not just the digital asset exchanges that they're pursuing. You know, you know US regulators, uh, and the DOJ are coming after uh, a couple of European banks, as I'm sure you probably heard, uh, for, for pretty sizable amounts, which in the middle of a banking crisis is not helpful. And speaking of the banking crisis, uh, that seems to be producing a bit of a rally in the Bitcoin price. Um, obviously, we're seeing gold going up as well at the, at the same time. 
Um, overall, do you think that the banking crisis is providing yet another validation for digital assets? Um, look, yes, yes and no. I, I, I mean, look, it depends. I, I guess there's, you know, there, there are the, the Bitcoin maximalists, which, by the way, I am not. Uh, that think this is the best thing to ever happen. I, I think that's a very naive way to think about the situation. Um, I, look, I, I think I think what's happened with the the rally in Bitcoin is is just that there has been something other than bad crypto news or crypto issues or crypto problems dominating the headlines. I think it's it's nothing more than that. I think we have to be mindful that that at the moment the the root cause of the banking crisis has been unfortunately the actions of the central banks by hiking rates uh, after. A, a pandemic and a crisis that, that really weakened the economy. And now you have a situation, if you look at the real estate market, where the wheels look as though they're going to come off. This is not good for anyone. Um, it's, it's, it's not a good situation that needs to be dealt with. And unfortunately, we're not really seeing a huge amount of action from the central banks. So, so look, I think there, are, there is a cohort of, uh, of investors that has gone into Bitcoin because they believe it's a safe haven asset. I, and to a certain extent, it kind of is. But, you know, I've got to be entirely honest with you, you know, crypto is the smallest uh, position I hold in my portfolio. My biggest position is, uh, well, my biggest position is actually physical silver followed by physical gold, followed by gold and silver miners. And then right at the bottom of my portfolio, you know, not a huge amount, um, is, uh, is, is digital assets. So, uh, you know, I, and I, th I think also it's, it's, we're in a situation where I think there is a little bit more to go in the current banking crisis, unfortunately. And, and I think we will probably see another calamity not, not, not too far away. Ultimately, I think that digital assets will perform very well. You know, I'm a big fan of Bitcoin, as I mentioned. I think we could see some some pretty phenomenal moves. But I think if we have structural issues that are not remedied by central banks and we see a collapse of that infrastructure, well, quite frankly, this is not going to end well for Bitcoin either. So I, I don't think I don't think that the that the two systems are mutually exclusive. You know, I think there's there's still a huge amount of correlation between the two. And and also, look, if you want to spend your Bitcoin. Um, yes, there are some places that will take Bitcoin payment, but the majority will take fiat payment. So you need to have some mechanism of having on and off ramps still. Um, and that, 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 that is also a challenge at the moment. And, and speaking of challenges, um, what, what sort of um, challenges have you been facing recently with the business? And, and can you also shed some light on, on what the, your plans are going forward? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, we, we, I think we've been very fortunate. We've, um, we've essentially been working on a solution that for 18 months people told me it was over engineered and uh, and, uh, and and didn't make a lot of sense and suddenly everyone thinks it's the, it's the best thing since sliced bread so, which gives me a, a sort of comfort that because we designed this you know 24 months ago and um, the fact that everyone seems to think that the panacea for the market is the model that we came up with is wonderful i, I would say one of the, the greatest challenges really we've come across i think is um certainly in the uk is is unfortunately we have an extremely complex uh, business model and explaining it to venture investors in the UK has been extremely difficult. And unfortunately, we've had to go to the US, which is a shame because I'd like to, to, to do that here. You know, you know London is the, the capital of fintech. But uh, in terms of explaining complex businesses like ours that are B2B, that are very, very cutting edge, that are, that are basically trailblazing uh, within new assets and new markets. Yeah, it's a challenge and, and it's a frustration. It really is. And it, it, I, I really wish that there were there were more investors in the uk like the ones in the states that are willing to take a view on things and that are willing to um to uh, to be open-minded enough to see the, the the vision and and the opportunity because it, it really is phenomenal but um other than that you know we've been lucky touchwood uh that that essentially the the chaos we've seen in both the crypto and the banking market hasn't really affected us and um 
you know, we're, we're still moving forward with, with our plans as, uh, as, as, we, uh, as we kind of discussed, I guess, early in the year. And, and absolutely, things are developing and shaping out in a way that we predicted, which is fantastic. Well, brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed for coming on the podcast today. That's been really enlightening. And uh, I hope to get you back on again soon to get your perspective on what's happening in uh, the digital asset space, because it never seems to stand still. Uh, Stuart, no problem at all. Thanks so much for having me on. And uh, yeah, look forward to coming back on because uh, this is a, uh, an ecosystem that is evolving at lightning speed. Thanks a lot, man. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast. Make sure you visit our website, www.thearmchairtrader.com, for your daily dose of financial markets news and sign up to our free newsletter there.